Quincy MD. Won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about trading, trading places. places. So I'm going to be Jim, and Jim's going to be Adam. Ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. Perfect audio. Take yourself back. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, <laughs> Trading Places, fantastic movie. Uh, second movie that Eddie Murphy did. Yeah. Made way more money than 48 Hours. Uh, it's, a, it's a good movie. It's fun. It's a great movie. It was an easier sell than 48 Hours. Yeah. You know, because it yeah. was just pretty much a straight. It was basically a Preston Sturges type yeah. upper crust uh, comedy with... Uh, some boobies and some swear words. <laughs> <laughs> some, a lot of people doing the boobies in this movie. All right, take yourself back to 1983. Ooh. February 28th, the final episode of MASH airs, setting the record for most watched television episode and reaching a total audience estimated at 125 million people, which still to this day remains unsurpassed. Ugh, it was so bad. Ugh, <laughs> it was like by that Just time. Just finale. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. MASH was amazing for the yeah. first three years. Yeah. But then it it just slowly became more and more of a soapbox for Alan Alda's – anyway. But the last (laughs) episode was awful, awful. And the only thing I really – I remember like there was some thing where he was holding a chicken, but it wasn't really a chicken. It was a baby, and they killed the baby, and that's why he had lost his mind. Because I think the last few episodes – uh, Hawkeye had, you know, kind of lost his I've, mind. I don't know. Nobody I've... gave a crap. But the only thing I remember is it was either he or Beej, BJ. I don't remember which one. I think it was Hawkeye. Gets on a motorcycle to, like, you know, drive away. And it must have been the actor because I've never seen a more awkward, squirrely <laughs> motorcycle, like, embarrassing. Taking like, off, uh, like, uh, spinning uh, out. And... It was like the equivalent of him, like, you know, rushing out of a store in a huff. No, God. But on a motorcycle? Uh, anyway, awful. Awful. awful ending. And to a, yeah. a really good groundbreaking show. Well, it is the most watched episode of TV ever, so... Yeah, well, a lot of disappointed people that night. <laughs> March 1st, the first collection of 12 Swatch models were introduced in Zurich, Switzerland. Holy crap, baby. Yeah. I had not thought about Swatch watches quite a while, but good Lord, did I have some swatches. Did you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had a really cool black one with, like, a gray face, and then I had... Nice. You know, you had a couple. You had a couple yeah, of you had to. for different times. They, well, they match your outfits. Yeah. <laughs> you had to, you know, with your shoulder pads and your Sprite pastel colors. Man, I had some cool, yeah, cool yeah. clothes with some zippers. You don't even know. You, you wouldn't even think a zipper could go there, baby. It was zippers on wow, zippers. I had wow. a zipper that opened up a zipper. A zipper. A it zipper was like a, a yeah, it was like this portal into another universe. It's, they've gone too far. It was. It was <laughs> gone too far. It was too much. <laughs> March 9th, the 3D printer is invented by Chuck Hole. And then the reason I put this in is because I didn't realize the 3D printers were so old. No, and and yeah. you would think by now you could... Well, I mean, you can. I mean, look, I don't know a ton about 3D printing. Yeah. I know that it's lucrative, and if you have a 3D printer, it's pretty much passive income. You can 3D print houses. You yeah. can 3D print guns. There's yeah. a whole ghost gun thing that's going on with yeah. 3D printed guns. You oh, can 3D oh. print prosthetic hands. Yeah. It's just, there's a variety of applications. It's it incredible. Cool. I would yeah. love to get one. I want to get one because you get the specs offline yeah. and then, and then you, you just, just like input them into your 3D printer stuff. and it just yeah. makes stuff. What I want, and this is kind of like the, this is where my head's at. 
I want the food 3D printer that's Oh, yeah. The Star Trek Next Generation? Yeah, the replica is like, beep, boop, boop, make me a pizza. Beep, boop, boop, club sandwich with extra cheese. Beep, boop, 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 well done fries. I think it can be done. Here's my thing. Here's why I think it can be done. This is my invention for it because I've thought about this a lot, Adam. I love food and I'm lazy, <laughs> lazy man. This is the genius the of your pro- The thing is you need a tank, right, Yeah. that holds every molecule. Goo? Just goo? No, like just a... every building block molecule. Right, but it'd just be goo. Well, it would be swirling in different – you would have to keep <laughs> the – Swirling goo. Well, you would have to keep the different building blocks separate, right? Oh, my God. This already sounds because, too complicated. No. You have, you, you have separate building blocks – of things that make things, like, pro, you know, <laughs> cellular things, protons, neutrons, electrons. I just want to add in that we are not scientists. The building blocks of life. <laughs> and then you, like, a recipe of making cookies or brownies. Yeah. You put the building blocks together just... to make whatever you want to make. You're, it's super easy. I can't believe they haven't done literally, it yet. That's literally what cooking is. <laughs> it's right, but on a, I'm talking is. about on a molecular level. You We're just want to push a, a button level. and have it make a thing. Yeah. Like... And it would also make the plate and everything because it would have all those building blocks. I would too. make a plate. Mm-hmm. Wow! And then you know what Ugh. recycling is? Just I... put the plate back in, and it breaks it down into its building blocks and puts it back into the little tubes. I, I think, given the current state of our our country and our world, that no one would ever accept molecule three D food printing. Oh, I would. And I'll tell you, as soon as somebody hears this. Christmas twenty twenty four? No. It's coming. No. They're stealing my idea. And it's no. gonna be the exact same it'll, building block tubes. It's, it's maybe in Japan and system. maybe it'll be like a billion <laughs> dollars. It. It'll be yeah. Well they better give me the first one because I Jeff came up Bezos with the idea. is gonna have it on his rocket ship to Mars. Yeah. Rocket man. <laughs> Wednesday, June eighth, nineteen eighty three. Trading places is released in theaters. Yet another movie. Forty eight hours was released on a Wednesday too. Yeah. I, I literally growing up was like Fridays, but for some reason Wednesdays. No, Wednesday for big movies because they wanted to get a jump on the box. Yeah, office. they. Yeah. I don't remember which. I think it was one of the Indiana Joneses, possibly. No, oh, yeah. Or maybe it was a Star Wars. Probably. Uh, but they released it on a Wednesday to jack up the box office yeah. Yeah. opening, whatever. Yeah. So that became kind of a, especially in this, mostly in the summer though. It wasn't so much a winter thing. Although it did, 48 Hours was. It was released. No, no, no. Uh, but I'm yeah. saying, but like, I'm saying yeah. mostly it was the summer. Yeah. And yeah. I think it, honestly, I think it also started when uh, big releases were coming out on Thanksgiving. And yeah. so, like, Wednesday night, they do, like, ooh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know certain old, holidays, yeah. they definitely would. Yeah, yeah. Because um, they would do that for Christmas, too. If Christmas was, yeah. like, later in the week or whatever, they would they would do it. And, it, and then I think it just became tradition. And but. summer, all the kids were out of school. So Wednesday, yeah. it didn't matter if it was if Wednesday you, or Friday, if whatever. It was one yeah. movie being released on Wednesday, you're more likely to get everybody to go see it. So, I mean, it makes sense. I just It just surprises me that I keep seeing all these Wednesday releases. All right. Well, yeah. calm down. I know. I know. I'm trying. The film earned $1.7 million in its opening day, uh, leading into its opening weekend, which it, it earned a total of $7.3 million, right. which was... Third for the weekend behind Octopussy, which made almost nine million. Octopussy. Yes, uh, which also made its debut that weekend, and Return of the Jedi, which made twelve million dollars that weekend, but was in his third week of release. Yeah, I mean that was a juggernaut, Octopussy, which I it was Roger Moore, so I don't know why I'm doing Sean Connery. <laughs> Um, that movie was pretty bad. It also it never claimed number one at the box office, but it did spend seventeen straight weeks in the top ten. Those movies like that or Stripes, yeah, or yeah. these already comedies that came out, Animal House. 
that came out around these times, 70s, early 80s, they were really profitable. Porkies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you know, yeah, they could yeah. steadily make money without having to, like, crack the top three. Yeah. They just were good performers because horny little teenage boys. <laughs> that's kind of the only place you can see You the, go back. Got to see more of the boobies. The boobs, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing how much film was determined by boobies. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot more back then. There was. Maybe not. You know, you know what's great now is there's, like, a penis renaissance. Like, there's a ton of wiener in... <laughs> Is movies there? and TV. Yeah, like Euphoria, there's a lot of wiener. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of Everybody showing their wiener too, yeah. in movies. And I just think it's good. I mean, you know, there was a lot of uh, 70s, 80s, a lot of boobies, a lot of, yeah. a lot of naked ladies. But let's, let's give them... Let's give, give, give them people in, what they want. Give Let's them, give them in some the, wieners. The do. Yeah. yeah, give them the wieners. <laughs> I say pull them wieners out. Well, and only when you're asked to on set. Yes, don't, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Keep the wiener in the pants. As long as everybody's okay with it. Yeah, when they're asking you to. I don't know. This is going in a weird place. Yeah, it is. All right. So uh, where did Sheridan Places come from? In the early 1980s, writer Timothy Harris often played tennis against two wealthy but frugal brothers who regularly engaged in a competitive rivalry in betting. Following one session, Harris returned home exasperated with the pair's conflict and concluded that they were, quote-unquote, awful people. Yeah. Uh, of course they were. A couple of re- – he's <laughs> I mean, probably just like, I know these guys. I like playing tennis. They get me into the club. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, after a while, just listening to these two guys bitch and moan, it's just not worth it. First world problems. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a struggling writer, damn it. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, the situation gave him the idea of two brothers betting over nature versus nurture in terms of human ability. Harris shared the idea with his writing partner, Herschel Weingrod, who liked the concept. Thank you. I was waiting for this. Uh, Herschel Weingrod. They should have been Winthrop and Weingrod. They should have, like, you know. I I, I wonder if that guy went to an Ivy League school. I Sure. (laughs) I'm going to say yes. Uh, Harris also drew inspiration for the story from his own living situation. He lived in a rundown area near Fairfax Avenue in Los Angeles. He described the area in grim terms as crime-ridden, where everyone either had a gun pointed at them or had been raped. Everybody's like, ooh, the good old times, and it was all salty. But it's like, eh, <laughs> salty's one thing. Getting robbed uh, all the time is oh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, previously, Harrison Weingrod had written a feature that was produced called Cheaper to Keeper, starring Mac Davis, a crossover country music star. I saw that movie. The film was widely panned. According to Gene Siskel, The comedy is lame. The sex is childish, and the only reason the film has an R rating is because of a single swear word. Cheaper to Keeper is cheaply made, slappily photographed comedy that isn't even on par with the few made-for-TV movies I've seen. It should disappear from town in a week. By the way, the few TV movies that I've seen. Gene Siskel's such a turdball. Oh, God, I do Rest not like peace. Gene Siskel at all. <laughs> he was such a mamby-pamby. Okay. Uh, Rest in peace. Yeah. <clears throat> Harrison Weingod researched the commodities market for the script, uh, trying to figure out the incredibly complicated plotline. They learned of financial market incidents, including Russian attempts to corner the wheat market and the Hunt Brothers' effort to corner the silver market on what became known as Silver Thursday. Silver Thursday. Which essentially, they tried as hard as they could to corner the silver market, and within one day, they lost over $1.9 billion. Good lord, and that's like... 50-year-ago billion dollars. Yeah, it was a long time ago, and it was sad. But even to the point where the <laughs> the day before they tried to do the final takeover, mm-hmm. uh, Diamond Producers uh, did a whole full-page ad in the New York Times saying, no one should have a right to have monopolize a market, <laughs> which I thought was really ironic considering that the Diamond oh, yeah. market is run essentially by two companies. And uh, yeah. yeah. 
They thought trading orange juice and pork bellies would be funnier because the public would be unaware such mundane items were traded. Like you would have in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just the, the look is so fantastic. It's an e- also an easier way to explain stuff to people It is because in it's, terms of food. Just like I right, said with the replicator. Right. Yeah. You know what America loves, Adam? Food. Yeah. yeah. One of my best friends in college went on to become a traitor. Yeah. Traitor! Yeah. <laughs> no, a traitor. Um, and I would visit him in New York, and I'd go on the floor of the World Trade Center. And oh, I nice. was there, And I swear to God, man. I did not understand any of it. I, it was just chaos, man. Everybody's screaming at each other. I knew the, I, the signals yeah. for one, two, three, you know, like h- how many things you want. Yeah. And it was just so stressful. And then you go <laughs> drinking with these guys, and they're all like all the – it's like a fraternity. Yeah. And everybody's yeah. got some hierarchy, and you're – and the big guy's like, well, you got to drink. And, and if you don't drink, I don't know what happens. You get, I don't know, kneecapped or something. I don't know. It's just like the stupid – it was just so dumb to me. All these guys are super rich, and they have the greatest cocaine. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the greatest cocaine. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, there were bullies. It was just this, yeah. Like, it was you had to it was very crap until yeah. you know it was very high schooly, very yeah. You know, like a fraternity, very hazing. And I was sitting there, and and, and they're all, and it's like eleven o'clock in the morning, and we're all just down in Bushmills, and I'm still hungover from the night before, and I'm like, I'm getting some feet. They're like, hey, my friends like, no, uh, you, you can't until he orders, you can't get anything. I'm like, I don't work for this mother effer. Give me a, <laughs> some nachos. And I guess that was a faux pas, but who cares? I don't whatever. work for him. Yeah, whatever. but it was just like, yeah, it was weird. Uh, Harris consulted with people in the commodities business to understand how the film's finale on the trading floor would work. The pair determined that the commodities market would make for an interesting setting for a film as long as it was not actually about the financial market itself. Yeah. Because it's super confusing, as Jim just pointed out, and uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. Well, yeah, it's like – I mean, uh, it does. It can be dumbed down a little bit. Well, it's – well, The Big Short did a really good job yes, of explaining yes. it by putting Margot uh, Robbie. Margot Robbie, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, the movie wasn't about – the the machinations of the scheme. No, no. That was the pair knew that the method of Winthorpe's and Valentine's financial victory could be confusing, but hoped the audiences would be too invested in the character's success to care about the details. It all sounded fine. I remember yeah. going is I mean, even you know, watching it again, I'm just like, it doesn't really matter. All no. I know is that they're winning and that's you it. You know that like, they need to get the the briefcase from yeah. the jerk and the briefcase holds the the key. Yeah. And yeah. that's the key to well, them winning. They were trying to cheat. And then they essentially turned it on them and, but, and made it look like they weren't cheating. But as long yeah. as they had the visual cue of the yes. briefcase, yeah, everybody yeah, could follow exactly. along. Because it's like, oh, there's the answers. They have the answers right. now. Now right. they're going to win. Right, exactly, exactly. The script was sold to Paramount Pictures under the title Black and White. Uh, dis- Horrible. Despite Horrible the title. fact that they, they uh, had a really awful first movie. What, um, what an a- absolutely on-the-nose title, by the yeah. way. Well, yeah. I- unless it was Black v. White. <laughs> Uh, Then Paramount executive Jeffrey Katzenberg offered the project to director John Landis. Stroke of genius. Yes. Landis disliked the working title, much like everyone else. Yeah. But favorably compared the script to older screwball comedies of the 1930s by directors like Frank Capra, Leo McCary, and Preston Sturgis. Yeah, I was going to say, this is exactly that type of society film. Yeah. Society comedies, which were basically... You know, making fun of the rich. All the way back to, like, uh, the Three Stooges. Yeah, you know, when, yeah, when, yeah. Strangely enough, the rich dowager would have to have a plumbing on the upstairs mm, commode yeah. during the most important party of the year. <laughs> and then she gets the Three Stooges to do it, which I'm sure they have horrible references. 
There's yeah, they no never way. they were never successful at anything. <laughs> no, there's no way that any of their past uh, customers are like, oh yeah, hire the Stooges. If you like watching yeah. guys get hit in the face with wrenches and then they'll ride a bathtub down your staircase, well, those are the guys <laughs> for you. Oh my! Landis wanted his film to reflect these concepts in the 1980s. He said the main updates were the addition of swearing and nudity. Landis admitted that it took him a while to understand how Trading Places finale worked. Uh, which really, it came down to just, you need a sight gag. And that really was all of us. But it had to work. No, it did. And it did, yeah. And the way it worked was even if you didn't know what was happening, you got the tension from what was going yes. on. Yes. You know, it's like, right. holy crap, there's a lot of shit going on. And yeah. also, you know, you can... Just by the, the look on the faces of, oh, my God, right. oh. oh, my God, it's happening. It's happening. What's going on? Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, Trading Places was developed with the intent to cast comedy duo Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder as Billy Ray Valentine and Louis Winthrop III, respectively. Well, they were comedy gold at the time. They oh, yeah. Stir Crazy, and they yeah. had... Uh, Stir Crazy was huge. But also Silver Streak. Yeah. Oh, my God, one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so man, good. I love... Train movies, old train movies where mysteries happen on a train. Yeah, oh, yeah. And if people yeah. get thrown off the train, they got to get back on the train. Like, <laughs> I love that stuff, man. Oh, I love those two guys, too, by the way. One of oh, the yeah, best yeah. comedy teams oh, yeah. ever. Oh, yeah. Such an odd pairing, too, yeah, if you think yeah. about it. But such a perfect pairing. They're so good. They're so good. Uh, when Pryor was severely injured after setting fire to himself while freebasing cocaine, the decision was made to cast someone else. Okay, first of all, he didn't. He, he put. Lighter fluid all over his body and lit himself on fire to Why? try to commit suicide. Oh. Freebasing cocaine. Everybody was like, oh, freebasing cocaine. It's like you have to use ether and blah, blah, blah. It's just smoking cocaine, man. Yeah. It's just like crack. You smoke cocaine in a pipe. You cannot burst into flames freebasing <laughs> cocaine. It's never I mean, happened. He lit his hair on fire. By he accident. admitted in his stand-up. That he tried to set himself Yeah, that it was a suicide attempt. He went running down the street on fire. Uh, Paramount Pictures suggested Eddie Murphy, despite the fact that the studio was initially unhappy with Murphy's performance in his first film, the as-then-unreleased action comedy 48 Hours. Please reference our last episode. Uh, which was also conceived as a prior project. Yeah, well, he was taking all of Pryor's roles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but he was like, that's he was the young Richard Pryor, which is... yeah. Yeah. Such a disservice to both of them because they couldn't be any more different as performers. Oh no, totally, totally. But uh, but you know, it's like you got to put them in a box. But uh, right, right, yeah. I also think, and and this is a lot of my speculation, but also reading into a lot of the things that we've been looking into on these films, mm-hmm. is I don't believe that they were disappointed in his performance more so that they were disappointed in the fact that he wasn't a get along go along charlie which is yeah he had he stood up for himself yeah he wasn't yeah. a pain in the butt right, right. but he, he would not let anybody well just like you know when the guy was when uh, michael uh, michael o'donohue right mm-hmm. was screaming at him yeah 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 you know during NSL, NSL, yeah, and yeah. he wouldn't back down i think i think that scared them and then they were hoping right, right. for him to fail, and so they yeah. wouldn't have to deal with him. But then, you know, it's like, well, here he is, and he's a huge <laughs> commodity. I just, it's, I, it just, there was a lot of control back then, and I yeah, think yeah. you know, you got to read between the lines. Uh, when Forty Eight Hours was well received by preview test audiences, the studio reversed its opinion publicly and and was like, yeah, we want to do, we want to work with Murphy. It's going to be great. He's going to make his money. Uh, Landis was unaware of Murphy, who had been gaining fame as a performer on SNL. Uh, after watching Murphy's audition tapes, uh, John Landis was impressed enough to travel to New York City to meet with him. 
Uh, Murphy said that he was paid $350,000 for the role. It was reported that the figure was as high as a million dollars, which was a huge step up from the fact that uh, I think for 48 hours he made, it was like 150 maybe, if that. Yeah, no, his quote kept going up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But given the fact that the movie wasn't even out yet, like it was, it's pretty impressive on his part. Uh, On his agent's part. Well, yes. (laughs) Landis wanted Dan Aykroyd to serve as Murphy's co-star. He had worked previously with Aykroyd on the musical comedy film The Blues Brothers. Uh, Landis had really appreciated working with Aykroyd. They got along really well. Uh, Landis said... He could easily play Winthorpe. You just give him what you want and he delivers. And I thought he'd be wonderful. Well, you know what I found? Recently, Dan Aykroyd has been saying in interviews that he's on the spectrum. That he's found oh, out yeah. that he is on the spectrum. Yeah. And it totally makes sense that he is so fo- – I mean, he's like yeah. that guy that's yeah. like laser-focused. Tell me what you want. I'll, you oh, know, yeah. You watch yeah. his performance. His perf- – like I've said a lot of times that like uh, Tom Cruise is all technique. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. no humanity to his acting. <laughs> he's very good at running. Just and he's look at his eyes. Very yeah. good at pretending to be a human being. <laughs> but I don't see it as acting. I see it as pure technique. It's almost like somebody is like, do this. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and then he – Yeah. But – Aykroyd is that really rare performer that is the perfect mix of technique and talent, mm-hmm. where he can laser focus, do everything the exact same way, but it's still funny, and it still comes, you know what I mean? It's like yeah, he's got yeah. this gift. It's like he's, he's a great physical comedian. You watch his dancing on the Blues Brothers. You watch his physical oh, comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But he's also a great verbal comedian, mm-hmm. which is just so rare. I just I think this guy is he's very underrated. Super talented. I agree. 100% agree. Paramount Pictures was less enamored with Aykroyd. Uh, executives believe that he performed better as part of a duo, as he had been working with John Belushi a lot. Right. It, strange. Leave it up that this movie has nothing to do with a duo. <laughs> Good Lord. Well, I mean, technically, that's, I mean, part of it, yes. Like, right. he, he's with Murphy through some of it, but most of accurate scenes are with Jamie Lee Curtis. And at the beginning, yeah. yeah the first yeah. Half, the, the first yeah. half of the second. I mean, that's how you you get to believe that his character's not a complete total No, ass, I know. I just, you know, all, their, all their, like, it's just, it's just. I know. It's studios. It this me, studios, man. They don't, man. They don't understand the machinations of making movies they don't understand yeah chemistry they don't understand any of this stuff it's just all they see is numbers well part of the problem is that his recent films Eckward's recent films had fared poorly at the box office uh yeah so he had uh, neighbors and dr detroit did not do well neighbors and... was one of belushi's last i think belushi's last film was the great divide which was kind of a good movie it was a grown-up yes. movie for yeah. him where he plays this reporter who goes to find this, you know, woman who's been living with the bears or whatever. Right, you right. Know, it's right. like fish out of water. <laughs> but before that, he did this weird movie, Neighbors, which was he and Aykroyd given too much leeway and just made this bizarre movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It no, is weird. No. It's kind of uncomfortable. It's weird. not. Their characters are weird. It's like uh, uh, Belushi plays kind of this straight-laced, you know, uh, guy that works for a corporation. And, Weird. And Dan Aykroyd and his wife are these crazy crazies who move next door. And they might be aliens, I think. So what, oh. But Dr. Detroit <laughs> is awesome. Okay. All I right. I don't love, think I've ever seen it. Oh, my God. Dr. Detroit. Okay. Aykroyd plays this guy who, I don't know what he does. He's like he's some sort of nerd or, or nebbish. And somehow he gets involved with these prostitutes. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he beca- it's it's much as you do. <laughs> it, it was it was like you know t- ripping off the uh, uh, that Ron Howard movie. Night it was shift, ripping yeah. off Night Shift a little bit. But so he takes on this. Perf- Persona called Doctor Detroit, where he's got you know he the the whole he you know he's like a professor, he's a professor like a, a English professor. So he puts together this costume that's just so stupid, like his hair is crazy. I, I, yeah, and he's yeah. like got this voice, and he's like uh. Doctor. It's great, dude. It's so funny. <laughs> but anyway, I love that movie, and uh, but nobody else did. It was just me. Yeah, I don't. I I've seen the poster. I don't think I've ever seen the movie. Uh, but because of those two movies, uh, Ackroyd agreed to take a pay cut for the role. To be in Trading Places. Oh, yeah. Like, he really wanted to do the movie, so he took pick up. He met his wife on Dr. Detroit. Oh, really? Who, I forget her name. She was the female lead on Bosom Buddies. Oh. The blonde. And she was the female lead in Dr. Detroit. And oh. They, and it was such a bizarre couple because she's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. But they've been together for, for like, since. 40 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, yeah That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. But yeah. that's where they met. And good for him and good for her. Yeah, good for them. Uh, the studio also objected to the casting of Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> Jeez, man. The uh, studio just hated everything yeah. about this movie. It's really funny. At the time, she was seen as a quote-unquote scream queen, primarily associated with low-quality B-movies. Uh, Curtis hosted the documentary Coming Soon that John Landis had directed, which was about horror movies. Great documentary, yeah. by the way. I think Fantastic. I saw that in the theater. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, she wanted to move away from horror films as she was conscious that the associa- association would limit her future career prospects. She'd actually turned down a role in the horror film Psycho 2, which came out in 83, because of this, uh, and obviously because her mother had starred in Psycho in 1960. Well, that's why they wanted her. Yeah. For that sort of you know connection. But she, did, she didn't, didn't want to do it, although she did perform in Halloween 2 as a favor to John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Sure. And was paid a million dollars for that role. Well, yeah, I mean, might have been part of it. You could, yeah. I mean, she had the uh, upper hand on that one. You know, yeah. it was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. But me, you got to give them the monies. Like she yeah. needed it. I mean, she had movie star parents. Oh, I know, I know. Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. Well, she was uh, only paid seventy thousand dollars for Trading Places. Yeah, took a, took a pay cut for it. Well, pay cut. I mean, whatever. Okay. She could afford it. I, I don't know, feel bad, but it was a smart move. Look, you have to do that sometimes. You got to prove yourself she, to move on. Yeah. And she you did know, great work in it. it. I mean, like she's fantastic. In the movie. It was a gamble that one hundred percent paid yeah. off because her career took off after that. And as they say in Scream, she had to go legit <laughs> to show her movies. <laughs> <laughs> like she didn't do it during the horror movies. Uh, she did it in the so-called highfalutin movie. That was shocking. When for I saw her to that, suddenly be shocking. naked, yeah, it was, it was it was so just unassuming. She's yeah. like, "All right, now I'm just changing." Bye. Yeah, like, it was just really like as, not as a kid, too, you're just like, yeah. "Whoa!" It's just very yeah. <laughs> uh, when asked if she had researched her, role as a had researched her role as a prostitute, I'd love to say I went out and turned a couple of tricks on Forty Second Street, <laughs> but I didn't. Nice. Curtis okay. had long hair when she was cast. Costume designer Deborah Nadulman Landis, which at the time she was not. They got married eventually, but they were not married at the time. Okay. She suggested Easy. cutting her hair shorter for the film. What a great – and that's how she's had her hair ever since. And, and, and it's it, – the moment – I had totally forgotten that she had short hair, and she took the wig off, and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it, like, it surprised it, me. It looks great, and she pretty okay. much rocked that cut. And her mom used to have short hair too. too oh, yeah. Me? She's gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, for the Greedy Duke brothers, Ralph Bellamy was the first choice for Randolph. Bellamy had appeared in almost 75 films between 1931 and 1945, most famously in Howard Hawks' His Girl Friday, The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. and Claude Rains, and the Ellery Queen series of films as Ellery Queen. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. In the 60s, he started working in TV and appeared in Rosemary's Baby and Oh God with George Burns and John Denver. Oh, man. I forgot about George Burns. I forgot about Oh God. Those series of movies. (laughs) I'm God. Hey, I'm God. Yeah. Oh, oh, so weird. Oh, their movies are so weird. George Burns was a tiny little gnome that was, was always 100 years oh, old. I was going to say, he, was, he looked so 100 weird. years old from the very beginning. Uh, oh, that sounds a little bit like uh, Columbo. <laughs> For Mortimer, Landis wanted to cast an actor famous in the 1930s or the 40s who was not associated with playing a villain. His first choice was Ray Milland, but the actor was unable to pass a physical test to qualify for insurance while filming. Yeah, Ray was pretty old. He was he old. He was old and, and gotten and, very tricky. Because yeah. he was in, if you listen to our Columbo shows and mm-hmm. stuff, he was doing a lot of TV at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had a great, Ray Milland had a great career. I mean, he directed a bunch yeah. of movies in the 50s. Like, he was, he was fantastic. But unfortunately, Hollywood just put those guys out to pass. Like, yeah. All these guys that were yeah. huge stars, they were just dumped and then ended up showing up in all the disaster movies yeah you know disaster movies and tv i mean yeah. it was it was, it was like just the love like, boat or disaster yeah. movies you know yeah. there's fred astaire the yeah, greatest hey. dancer and biggest <laughs> box office draw in 1938 but here he is playing third fiddle in the <laughs> riding a table down the earthquake yeah. <laughs> yeah uh as the start date for filming loomed landis thought of don amici uh, the casting director claimed that Don Amici was dead. Don Amici. I love that name. I love oh. that name. Don Amici. No, Don nothing. Amici. It's such a, it just flows off your lips like butter. Don Amici. Uh, Landis was skeptical of Don Amici being dead and contacted the Screen Actors Guild in an attempt to locate him. They confirmed that Amici had no agent and his royalty payments were being forwarded to his son in Arizona, forcing Landis to accept the evidence that Amici was dead. However, after hearing of Landis' search, one of the Paramount Studios' secretaries mentioned that they saw Amici regularly on San Vicente Boulevard in Santa Monica, California. Turning tricks. He was not dead. He was S and the B for heroin money. Wow. Really? Oh, okay. Sorting the donuts. Talk about Don Amici that way. He was sorting the donuts. The donuts. The donut shot. What did you think? Uh, Landis called directory assistance to locate a D. Amici in the area and made contact. Amici had not featured in a film for over a decade. When asked why, he said that no, no one ever offered me. <laughs> yeah, sorry. He said no one ever offered me work. He just he just literally was like, but he also didn't have an agent, which is the famously Bill yeah. Murray doesn't have an agent. Right. But he was just one of those guys. He was like, yeah, just, you know where I'm at. Just call me. But he. It- it's it's not also it's I mean we make it sound like he was walking San Vicente and everybody <laughs> thought he was dead like he was living in some crappy one bedroom no, apartment. No, guy was totally rich. Yeah, you know, he, yes, yes. He, it's not like he needed to work or anything. It's no, just no. He you know, the phone wasn't ringing. Uh, the the studio didn't want to pay Amici what Milan had been offered. Amici took that as a slight, and because he was financially independent and in no need of work, he refused to take the part until he received equal pay. Good for yeah. him. Which is, it's, he, him and Bellamy are so good in this movie. Oh, my God. You totally so buy them, even movie. though they look nothing alike. You 100% buy them as brothers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're so, so unlikable. It's so great. Landis but claimed. likable. Oh, I'm sorry. I know, I know, I know. But, it's, but yeah, in a charming way. Unlikable in a very charming way. In a cartoony. It's yeah. like, it's definitely, it, it's, it's, this movie reminds me of the Bugs Bunny opera shorts oh yeah 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 or, totally. you know where it's like you get some culture in your goof uh landis claimed that the studio reduced the film's budget frustrated amici's casting after a long absence from film work again the studio just trying to make this movie fail this is what look 
This is John Landis, who's a proven director. Yes. This is Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, he had a few missteps, but still a proven performer. Eddie Murphy on his way up. Don Amici, a, a, a classic actor from... Yeah. In the studios, just like, no, this all sounds really stupid. Yeah. It shows you how difficult it is. How does anybody get anything made if these guys are still getting, uh, you know, having to fight the studio at every single step? Yeah, it's very true. John Gielgud and Ronnie Barker were considered for the role of Winthorpe's butler, Coleman. Uh, Gielgud had played the butler and Arthur with Dudley Moore winning an Oscar for the performance. Yes. Uh, and there Should is, I wash your dick, sir? I'm gonna say, <laughs> I'm gonna say that's probably the reason he turned it down. Yeah. Uh, he already did that. He already did that part. He, and there was no reason. To he not it. only did it, he crushed it. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah, there's yeah. no way he could do a better butler. Better, and everybody right. would have been like, oh, it, it would have been too too. Uh, it it would have been not confusing, but it would have been. It would have been bad. It would have been. It would have been, been like trying. You would have been comparing too much. Be like, oh, yeah. did he stop working for Arthur and now yeah, he's working yeah. for you know? Yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, Ronnie Barker refused to act if it involved filming more than seven miles from his home in the United Kingdom. Okay, who is Ronnie Barker? I don't know. That's why. <laughs> That's why. I don't even know. I just thought it was funny that he's like, I have the power to not shoot something more than seven miles away from my house. Well, we, we're shooting in New York, uh, Ronnie. I think yeah. that's a little more than seven miles, so okay. Yeah, I'm going to pass. Yeah, <laughs> bummer, because, you know. The part went to Denim Elliott, best known for his part as Marcus Brody in the Indiana Jones series. Indy. Oh, my God. I still, my absolute favorite moment in every any Indiana Jones movie is when... Indy's talking to the Nazis about you'll Marcus Brody and how you'll never find him. And he knows everybody. Smash cut to him going, help me. Someone <laughs> please help me. He's already disappeared. <laughs> never find oh, my him. God. It's so played so perfectly. Yes. Anybody tell me where I am? Uh, G. Gordon Liddy, a central figure in the Watergate political scandal of the early 1970s, was offered the role of corrupt official Clarence Beeks. Liddy was interested in the offer until he learned that Beeks becomes the romantic partner of a gorilla. Yeah, because at the time, almost everybody wished that G. Gordon Liddy was assaulted by a gorilla. <laughs> I know, I that know. Traitorous ass. It would be too. It would be too satisfying. That guy, man, talk about that guy went on to. It's so the '80s were so weird, man. It's okay. Yeah. Like, he was on like Miami Vice. He was on all these shows, I, and it was like, oh, G. Gordon Liddy. And he was almost like a hero, ugh, you know, to ugh, people. Barf. It's like, ugh, it's like the whole, like, uh, uh, what's that moron that's on the uh, the, the mass singer, uh, the, uh, Rudy Giuliani. Oh, Giuliani. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just like, ugh. Yeah. We don't need you jerks, you traitor's <laughs> ass. We don't need you mucking up our entertainment. And anyway, this the actor that they got is... Uh, it, it doesn't matter. Yes, because at the end of the day, Paul Gleason took the part, <laughs> who is incredible. Uh, his character does read a copy of Liddy's autobiography yeah. while riding the train. Paul Gleason was in... Uh, Breakfast Club. He was the principal was in the Breakfast principal, Club. And he was the police uh, like commander. Captain or commander, yeah, yeah. in Die Hard. The one that was like, no, man. No, he let him die, man. He just let him die. But he, shooting at the lights. Yeah, he, you get the bull by the horns. <laughs> that guy played an a-hole so well. But also, he's one of those guys, too. Yeah. Remember how I told you, like, there's bad guys that I like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I yes. wish they were good guys. Yeah. He's definitely one of those actors he, because... Yes. He's just so good. He's just he's, he's just he's ah, so delicious. good at being an ass that I really want to sit down and just have a drink with him and be like, "How? How did you how do you pull this off?" Uh Don McLeod played portrayed the gorilla. He was a mime that had already become popular for his performances as a gorilla in the American Tourister commercials. Okay. 
A, this breaks my heart because up until you told me this, <laughs> I thought it was a real gorilla. I remember in the those commercials, commercials. Yeah, or in the movie. No, no, not in the movie. I'm not an idiot, idiot. I'm just an idiot. <laughs> Uh, in the commercials, <laughs> they would throw a suitcase yeah, into yeah. like a gorilla's pen. Yeah, I and then the gorilla these, would yeah. just beat the crap out of it. Yeah, and I one hundred percent thought it was, it was real a real gorilla. gorilla. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> and and I there's I gotta, another thing. And, and when you, you get to it, there's another thing that that I completely misread for no. the entire time until uh, you brought it up. Okay, so. all right. Uh, I just want to point out that if you go back and rewatch the American Tourist commercials, it's really obvious. Yeah, I was a baby <laughs> boy, okay? I didn't have, you know, it, it wasn't as hey, bad as like... Look, good for Don McLeod for turning that into film roles. Like the man was in multiple movies playing a gorilla. He was a good goddamn gorilla. That's what I'm going to say. He, <laughs> he was a me. fantastic mind. He fooled me until I, he was, I was great. in my 50s. Powered of Don McLeod. Uh, the film also had numerous cameos. Uh, Jim Belushi played Harvey, a party goer on New Year's Eve, who eventually was dressed up like a gorilla, and mm-hmm. a very fake gorilla. Because there was a New Year's Eve costume train I party? Doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's what happens when you go from Philadelphia to New York. <laughs> Don't you know, Jim? I loved it. Uh, singer Bo Diddley is a pawnbroker, trying to win uh, Winthorpe's trying to get money. Uh, Curtis's sister, Kelly Curtis, uh, as Penelope's friend Muffy. 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 Uh, Constance Fry. Constance <laughs> Fry. <laughs> the Muppets puppeteers Frank Oz and Richard Hunt as respectively a police officer and Wilson, the Duke's broker on the trading floor. Now, Frank Oz, I believe, reprised his role from the Blues Brothers where yes. he was, well, the same well, type of role. Uh, yeah. Where yeah. he was given the. I don't know if it. Yeah. It was you know, he gave all the personal effects back to the I, prisoner. He came on screen when we were rewatching it. And I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but we were watching it and you were like, oh, it's Frank Oz. And I was like, no, it's not. That's not what Frank <laughs> Oz looks like. And then he started talking. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. It is Frank oh, yeah. Oz. Well, I mean, Frank, he worked for Joliet in Blues Brothers. Yes. And I guess he got. Work someplace in Lived county in New York, Philadelphia. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Hey, I want to know. I want a movie about that guy, about the, <laughs> the prison guard. <laughs> Ackerd's former Saturday Night Live colleagues, Tom Davis and Al Franken, as the train baggage handlers. They're really very, funny, yeah. very high <laughs> train baggage handlers. Yeah, who that went on for so long, Ooh. and I was it was funny. Oh yeah, but it just went on for so long. And they're eating the wait, wait, was it two wait. gorillas? <laughs> Oh, look, they're in love. We better better put this girl in. Let's let him be. Uh, uh, Giancarlo Esposito as a cellmate. It was one of his first parts. Yeah, uh, he was uh, on Breaking Bad as Gus Fring. Uh, he's such a good actor. And he's in the newest Far Cry. Far Cry 6. 6 yeah. as the bad guy. But bad good Lord, he looks like a baby boy. He oh, looks so like he's young. 16 years old, man. He's just standing next to Eddie Murphy. He's the only guy I, in the movie who looks younger than Eddie Murphy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't even know. I don't remember if he even had any lines, but I... No, he's just watching Eddie Murphy talk about his kung fu. Yeah. (laughs) So principal photography began on December 13th, 1982, just a mere eight days after 48 Hours opened. Nice. uh, Which would have uh, some impact on the filming. Uh, Filming took place on location in Philadelphia and New York City. The budget was estimated to be about $15 million. The script underwent minor changes throughout filming. Some improv was also encouraged. You know, just... On the fifteen million, yeah, for to be able to to be able to shoot on the trading floor and all that stuff for fifteen yeah. million. Well, it wasn't the actual. I mean, no, it, I mean, it was, it was a in the building floor, but yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it was in the World Trade Center. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is the budget is on screen. It seems like a much 
bigger budget mm-hmm. than what yes. Yeah, because it's very expansive and it's very ornate and it's, yeah. it takes advantage of a lot of the really ritzy, beautiful locales in New York and also a lot of the mm, not so ritzy locales. Philadelphia. Like Most of it's in Philadelphia. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> the only part that's in New York was the end with, and I think there was a scene with them, but most of it was in Philadelphia. Well, it's close to New York. That is true. It is one party train right away. Yep. <laughs> Changes of the script were normally discussed in advance, but on other occasions, ad-lib dialogue was considered funny enough to keep. Examples of ad-libs retained in the film include Valentine comparing Randolph to Randy Jackson of the Jackson 5 mm. uh, and demonstrating his court of blood technique in jail. Wow! Yeah. Murphy liked Trading Place's script. He felt it was unlike 48 Hours, which he said had been saved by director Walter Hill. Uh, he changed many of his own lines because he said that a white writer writing for a black person would use stereotypical dialogue like jive turkey and sucker, and he would rewrite his lines to sound more authentic. Yeah. I yes. mean, that's 100% true. <laughs> yes. Uh, Weingrod, Herschel Weingrod, one of the writers, said that the studio objected to Murphy's line, Who put their cools out of my prison rug? They believed it was racist because the cool cigarette brand was targeted targeted mainly at African Americans. Uh, Murphy fought to keep it in. Okay, this is the second thing I was telling you about that totally blew my mind because yeah. I thought that he had said, "Who put their coals? Oh, like their butts? Oh, out on my, I thought oh. it was coals, which was a okay. slang for butts, rather than cools, no, was which cools. was the menthol racist his- cigarettes." <laughs> Just shows you how unracist I am. Okay. That I thought they were cold. I just this is just another point of the fact <laughs> it's that just no, it seriously it was weird. No matter what, the studio was thinking the exact opposite of the creative team every single time. Yeah. Well, that's just a, an ex, a good test of an executive is if he always gets it wrong, hire him. <laughs> uh, Ophelia pretending to be a European exchange student to fool Beeks was also improvised. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis used a mix of German attire with a Swedish accent because she could not perform a German accent. No. And everybody kind of do the Swedish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first 15 days of filming were spent in Philadelphia. Landis described the weather as freezing. While filming the scene where Randolph and Mortimer collect Valentine from jail, Landis was positioned in a tow truck that pulled the Rolls Royce carrying Amici, Bellamy, and Murphy. Landis wore a thick parka to stay warm, and the actors had a space heater in their vehicle. Dangerous. And, yeah. And Landis listened to their dialogue via radio. Uh, describing the filming of the scene, Landis recalled a jovial discussion between Don Amici, Ralph Bellamy, and Eddie Murphy, with Bellamy said that Trading Places was his 99th film, Amici said it was his 100th, and then Murphy informed Landis that... Between the three of us, we made 201 films! Eh, always a jokester. <laughs> he is a comedian, Adam. Yes. During filming in Philadelphia, Murphy was so popular that a police officer had to be stationed outside of his trailer to control the crowds. I think that was more of Saturday Night Live than everybody clamoring for yeah, 48 Hours. But, it's, but at that time, 48 Hours had just come out. Sure, sure. Like it was, I mean, it definitely But he was still on Saturday Night Live yeah, at the yeah, time. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. It was uh, very popular. Filming moved to New York City in January 1983. Many of the interior scenes were filmed there. The scene where Valentine and Winthorpe enact their plan against the Dukes was filmed at the Comex Commodity Exchange located inside Four World Trade Center. Uh, the lack of windows gave the appearance the floor was situated below ground, but it was actually on a high floor uh, because they don't want the traders to see daylight, <laughs> I guess. No. Uh, well, there's no distractions, man. True. Uh, the scene was shot over approximately three to four hours a day over two days. It was scheduled to take place during a weekday, but Ackwards and Murphy's presence on the floor distracted the active traders, and over $6 billion of trading had to be halted. That added to the budget. 
Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a very high budget, yes. Uh, filming was scheduled for the weekend. A majority of the people on screen are actual traders, along with some extras. Landis said the traders in the film were less physically rough with each other when they were than, than they were during normal oh, trading. Oh, yeah, dude, it's mad. I've I never seen even anything imagine. more yeah. insane than watching actual trading and being on the floor. It's like, I... it's like being, walking around a gladiator pit. Yeah, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, wow, they're gladiating. <laughs> uh, Don Amici was opposed to using foul language and often apologized in advance to his crewmates for what he was scripted to say. What a nice dude. He only, this is another reason that I was like, I can't believe that he was just totally like, eh, I'm just not working because nobody's calling me. He only performed one take of his final scene where he shouts F him towards Randolph. He literally in one take and then walked off. That's all he needed. He's a pro. He is. Uh, the final scene shot was the main character celebrating on a beach. This was filmed in St. Croix, uh, an island in the United States Virgin Islands, which I was at just about a month and a half ago. Mm, humble brag. Yeah, it was fun. St. Croix is beautiful. Uh, principal photography concluded on March 1st, 1983, after 78 days. Elmer Bernstein composed the score. He and Landis had collaborated previously on several films, including The Blues Brothers and the horror comedy An American Werewolf in London. Great movie. Fantastic movie. Landis conceived of, the, uh, conceived of the idea to use the opera buffa The Marriage of Figaro by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart as the underlying theme for the score. That's what really added to the feel of the old-timey yeah. comedies yeah. because it gave it such an upper crusty – because, I mean, back then, too, yeah. every – you know – Classical music was always associated with the upper crust. You know, anytime, <laughs> you know, when we would do our little, you know, masterpiece theater yeah, yeah. takeoffs, we would always use classical music. Of course, to start of course. Because that's how you get to be stuffy. <laughs> By the end of its theatrical run, Trading Places earned an approximate box office gross of $90.4 million. Nice. Uh, it finished as the fourth highest grossing film of 1983 behind Paramount Studios' surprise hit, the romantic drama Flashdance, which made $90.46 million. Yeah, Jennifer Beals yeah. in The Book of Boba Fett. Yes. Uh, the comedy drama Terms of Endearment, which made $108.4 million. Man, that was a sad movie. That was a sad movie. I can, they call it a comedy drama. Well, just... it is. I mean, it was pretty funny up until she died. Buh. And then it wasn't that funny. And then it was funny again. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, the number one movie of the year, Return of the Jedi, with a staggering $309.2 million. Yeah, like 100 of that was from me. This <laughs> is why Jim is broke now. Uh, <laughs> the film revitalized Eckerd's career after the flops of Neighbors and Dr. Detroit. Uh, he went on to be able to do Ghostbusters and, and various things. Uh, at the 41st Golden Globe Awards in 1984, the film received two nominations, Best Musical or Comedy, losing to romantic drama Yentl. Oh, Yentl, I should have known. <laughs> That's from The Simpsons. <laughs> and best actor in a musical or comedy for Murphy, who lost to Michael Caine's performance in the comedy drama Educating Rita. I'm educating Rita. At the 56th Academy Awards, Bernstein was nominated for best original score. He lost to Michelle Legrand and Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who scored Yentl. Oh, Yentl. Yeah, always. 37th British Academy Film Awards named Elliot and Curtis the Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actors, respectively. Respectively, yeah. yeah. You know what's really weird? The As of the taping of this, the Oscar nominations came out today, mm -hmm. and I could not care any less. And I don't think I've watched the Oscars in the last few years. No. But I remember, man, the Oscars were a big, big deal. Yeah, yeah. They used to be so much fun. 
you get like Billy Crystal hosting or you get something and it just be this big old thing. And now it's just no who cares. And you know what? I Yeah. The ones that got the biggest nods this year. I, I made a list this morning off of the movies I hadn't seen. I've only seen one of the ten nominees. Which one? Uh, don't look up. Yeah. Uh, the others I've not seen. Half of them are not available right now, so I'm not going to see them. Well, the and one that got the most, the Deer of the Dog, or the, what is it? Power of the Dog? The Power of the Way of the Dog, the Power Something of the like Dog. Something like that, yeah. Man, that was just not good. It was pretty. I, yeah. It was shot well. <laughs> but it was boring and predictable and uh, I would 100% without any sort of hesitation give the Golden Raspberry Award to yeah. Mr. Benedict Cumberbatch yeah. for that movie. Wow. All right. Yeah. Uh, Harris and Weingrod were nominated for a BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay, but they lost to Paul D. Zimmerman for the 1982 black comedy, The King of Comedy. Oh, oh, oh man. Oh, such a good movie. Yeah. One of the most underrated uh, Scorsese movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah and, you know. and De Niro movies, man. If you want to see De Niro, oh, man. Hoobity doobity. Watch that flim. <laughs> that flim? That flim. Watch, Watch that flim. flim. It's a flim flam. Along with the impact their respective roles had on its star's careers, Trading Places is considered one of the best comedy films ever made and part of the canon of American comedies. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were talking about it while we were watching it. It is like three different movies, man. Yeah. But it yeah. works. Like, it starts out as, you know, a switcheroo double-do, yeah. and then it turns into a re- revenge movie, and then it ret- it's just like the stuff on the train. The, it just moves in ways yeah. that keep it alive. Like keep It's such a living comedy. It's always moving and grooving and jibbity-jabbity. <laughs> Bellamy and Amici re- reprised their Duke characters for Murphy's 1980 film Coming to America. Uh, Murphy portrayed P- Prince Hakim, who hands the now homeless brothers a large sum of cash. Mortimer tells Randolph that it is enough to give them a new start. This uh, is enough, Randolph. We can do. We can do it again. <laughs> Which the thing is that, and I still haven't seen Coming to America, the number two, the sequel mm-hmm. to Coming to America. Which is impossible to talk about on a podcast. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy are not in that one. They are not in it, but there's a reference to the Dukes revealing they used the Akeem's donation to rebuild their business. Yes, they did. Yeah. But, but they, they are not in it because they are both dead. Yeah, rest in peace. Yes, both of them. I did not make it past the Rest in 90s. pieces, right? Yeah. Rest in pieces? Is that how you do yeah. it? Yeah, well, I mean. Rests in pieces. Uh, of the two films between Coming to America and Trading Places, Murphy said that while he loves Trading Places, he prefers Coming to America because it allowed him to portray multiple characters. Sure. Which he then did in like 50 movies throughout his career. Yeah. Yeah. I Look. Sometimes to better results. <laughs> uh, I will say this. All of Eddie Murphy's characters are great. Yeah. Uh, because he, you know, the clumps, all of them, silly stuff, but... Uh, you look at that dinner scene in the clumps. That's absolute freaking genius, man. Oh, he yeah. He is so yeah. different as each yes. character. Any actor could put on some makeup and boom, a different guy. Mm, but yeah. he embodied the grandmother is so much different than the uncle. And the uncle is so much different than the yeah. father. And the yeah. father, you know, it's just he and, it's, and in Coming to America, you know, he got away with playing an old Jewish man. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And uh, even, mm, the, the woman in Norbit. Not his best work. No, you know, no, no. But still agreed. funny. And yeah. and uh, and look at, like, uh, at Bowfinger, man. Yeah. You know, that. Yeah. Poof. Oh, yeah. Two yeah. completely different characters. Two completely different yeah. characters. Yeah. And it's just, he, I, I get it, because he's great at playing different characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love it. But I think 
this is kind of his last straight comedy, if that makes sense. You know, like where he's just in the movie yeah. rather than he yeah. is the movie. Just being the – yeah. He, yeah. You know, this is he and Aykroyd's movie. 48 Hours is he and Nolte's movie. Yeah. Agreed. But then it just became – Murphy movies. Murphy, yeah. You know, how many guys, how many characters can Murphy play? You yeah. know, how many, you know, it, it, and I think that kind of led to his downfall because it was yeah. just like, and it's not his fault. It's just like, well, we have a script. Let's attach Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Bippity yeah. boopity. You know, and we'll it's. Give you $40 million yeah. and, and make this movie. Yeah. And Eddie Murphy's got a lot of kids and, and yeah. alimony yeah. and <laughs> Bubble a Hill lot and, of kids. and a lot of things to pay for and take care of. So, you know, he did what he had to do. And then he just disappeared. (laughs) Uh, In 2010, nearly 30 years after its release, the film was cited in the testimony of Commodity Futures Trading Commission Chief Gary Gensler regarding new regulations on the financial markets. He said, We have recommended banning using misappropriated government information to trade in the commodity markets. In the movie Trading Places, starring Eddie Murphy, the Duke brothers intended to profit from trades in frozen concentrated orange juice futures contracts... Using an illicitly, illicitly obtained and not yet public Department of Agriculture orange crop report, characters played by Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd intercept the misappropriated report and trade on it to profit and ruin the Duke brothers. Uh, The testimony was part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act designed to prevent insider trading on commodities markets, which had previously not been illegal. Insane. I I just... Uh, and, you know, and now it's it's been gutted anyway. I mean, it doesn't God, matter now. I mean, it was like it was a nice time while it lasted. Section 746 of the Reform Act is referred to as the Eddie Murphy Rule. And every time somebody cites the Eddie Murphy Rule, they have to go. But his 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 quote, the Gensler's quote there really did sum up. What essentially happened at the end of the movie. Yeah. And it really comes down to the Duke brothers were trying to cheat. And then Aykroyd and Murphy figured it out and outcheated them. And outcheated them, but they still cheated. <laughs> but they still cheated, and and they made the Duke brothers lose a bunch of money. Yeah, and they ended up getting enough money to move to an island. They did. They yes, did. looking good, Mortimer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good, it. Reggie. That's uh, that's all I got for uh, Trading Places. Uh, Absolutely phenomenal movie. It's too bad. It's just not available on any streaming services right no, this now. This is like this is weird. I think that. They're trying to ruin us, Adam, because everything that we want to watch now isn't. And it's isn't like, come streaming. on, this is not. This is a movie that it shouldn't. It should be. It should be on everything. I yeah, mean, it, it it does. It it's weird. These older movies and television shows are floaters, and they'll they'll float around and they'll pop up on something. Just you know, every time it's like, what's coming on Netflix in May? You can yeah. look up. You know, go to the tease. See if Trading Places is there. <laughs> Go to the numbers in the beginning and see if it'll, 48 Hours is It'll there. most likely be on Paramount Plus, sure. which it literally was yeah. until January 31st. Yes. <laughs> so crazy. And when we wanted to watch the movie the next day, it was gone. But it is a, a perfect comedy. I agree. I agree. There's nothing I would change. There is, there is some troubling problematic things in it. Yes. But for but, the time and given, it is a perfect movie. And the problematic things aren't... Uh, the character that that uh, Dan Aykroyd plays isn't, you know, some sort of minstrel show. Off no, I'm not. No. I'm not. Good Lord, am not I condoning? not ever no. condoning using blackface? No, no, God, no. But you know, back then, that's how they did 
disguises sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that they were hate-based. I think no, it was just, no. you know, they weren't trying to be – it doesn't have – you know. It's, it, it didn't have as much uh, – they didn't have as much foresight into it as they probably should Right, have. and there was no I mean, venom behind it. It was just funny to see him, and it was probably an accent he could do, man. A really yeah. bad Jamaican accent. Oh, um, yeah. There was a movie Acura did later where he did a really bad Jamaican accent. Yeah, and it was, probably. He was a cop or something and had dreads, and like, but he wasn't in blackface. It might have been that movie he did with Gene Hackman. Where he was playing yes. all the different characters. He was yes. like the, the cop with the uh, mental disorder. The uh, mental disorder, yeah. Loose Cannon? Yep. Loose Cannon, so. maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, almost, I almost feel like it was kind of awkward being like, no, really, I can just do a Jamaican <laughs> accent. I, I'm, <laughs> like, not, I'm not a racist asshole. I give it up, Danny. Give it up. <laughs> you do all yeah. other great accents. Just do those. Um, but what a great movie. And it's so – and we mentioned this last time, and we'll talk about more on the Stepdad Show. But it's really cool to see Eddie Murphy coming back. Yeah. And, you know, he's got a new Netflix movie coming out this year with uh, Jonah Hill. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully it'll be funny. The trailer looks funny. I mean, the the bits I've seen, they look funny. Yeah. He's back. People want to see him. He wants to be seen. You know? Yeah, yeah. He seems like he finally wants to work again and and he's get like back into 60 it. He's sixty too, right? He's mm-hmm. like sixty. God, he's he was, still he's so sixty one this year. Yeah, he's he doesn't look any different, man. He, no. he could be in his early forties or what? I think that guy. Yeah, yeah. Man, I just uh, he he'll hit it though. There'll be like five, <laughs> six, seven years from now. It'd be like oh. He's starting to look like an old lady. <laughs> because all the really handsome guys that last for a long time yeah. start looking like an old lady. The only one that I've so far I've seen that has uh, has avoided that curse is Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah. But He's still knows? very manly looking. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Clint Eastwood, man. He doesn't look Clint Eastwood. He's just like, he's a bag of bones. <sighs> I watched Cry Macho, which I enjoyed just because I love him. But it's like, watch. I, I, it was one of those movies, and I ex- explained this before, that makes me nervous because he's so old and fragile. Like when he throws a punch. I, yeah. I just, it's like, oh, his, his you're whole gonna... arm's going to shatter into a million pieces. <laughs> it's just scary. It's sad seeing those old guys get, get, uh, well, it, get old. Yeah, it is. Old, getting old sucks at him. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to go. Uh, and we'll be back next week with the Stepdad Show yeah. and uh, talk more about Eddie Murphy and yeah. some of his stand-up. And talk, like, I, I, I just want to make a correction before then. I said I, I don't even know what I referenced when I said I saw Eddie Murphy in concert. I think of the Raw or something. But yeah. what it was was the Pieces of My Mind tour. And I'll talk about that. That was the yeah. one with the Weather Girls that yeah. Yeah, yeah, opened yeah. for. Totally. All right. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs> You can pre three. Curtis jokingly remarked, "I'd love to say I'm an." Oh wait, that's a that's Ted Colonel Woman. Hey guys, that's not. Curtis had long hair when she was cast. Costume designer designer Deborah Noodleman Landis. <laughs> Noodleman. I'm uh, sorry, it's actually Deborah Noodleman. Okay, anyway, I'm gonna do this again. Welcome to the Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about. Trading places. Let's do that again because I was about to say 48 hours. Nope, we did that already. All right. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. What's happening? Already in progress.